Thanks for downloading this podcast from RNIB Connect Radio. Kirsty James is a digital skills officer for RNIB Cymru. Kirsty started to lose her sight in 2003 and it was round about that time that she was diagnosed with Stargardt's. Subsequently, she was diagnosed with Charles Bonnet syndrome. Kirsty is a great lover of music and festivals and she joins me now to tell us her life story. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us on the programme today. Now, you started to notice problems with your sight around about 2003 and that's when you were diagnosed with Stargardt's. Tell us a bit about that time for you. So I was in year nine of high school and I remember when I first started out with my sight going, I went back to start new term and then I was sat in registration when you have to write down your timetable. I was looking at the board and it was in green pen and I was thinking, I can't see it. And I thought, well, it must be just because it's in green. So I just sort of like blagged my way and wrote the timetable. Obviously, later realised that you can't just make up a timetable because you'll end up in the wrong classes. And there was a few other things and I went to the opticians and they said they couldn't find anything. So instead of like actually speaking out, my behaviour spiralled out of control. I disengaged in education and was just doing anything really that I could do so that I didn't have to learn and then talk about it because it was scaring me. I then obviously told my parents I still couldn't see. They took me back a number of times saying, you know, this is obviously something wrong. No, no, your daughter must just want glasses. Like, I don't want glasses. Glasses back then wasn't cool like they are now. And then I had a supply English teacher who was going around the class asking the class to read. And so I knew that it got to me and I just crumbled. I was like, I can't do this and kicked off and was like, I can't read. So instead of him shouting at me at the end of the class, when everybody left, he sat with me and asked me why I wouldn't read. And I said, it's because I can't see it. And that was when I admitted for the first time that I couldn't see to someone else other than my mum and dad. And that, from then on was when my mum really sort of put her foot down with the opticians and said, you know, something's got to be done. I need to be referred to a hospital. And that is when I was diagnosed with Stargardt's disease. Now, that must have been absolutely terrifying for you, particularly if you're in school and your peer group are all kind of getting on with the things you do when you're a teenager. And at that age, you know, you're, you're kind of finding yourself, you're finding your way in life anyway to, to be diagnosed with something like Stargardt's. I'm sure it's a condition that you'd never heard of before. That must have been pretty frightening. Yeah, it was, especially the way that it was delivered to me as well. You know, you're going to go blind. You know, that's pretty hard-hitting at any age that you're at, but not made aware that being registered blind doesn't mean completely blind. It wasn't explained for, well, until a couple of years ago. You know, I really thought I was going to go completely blind because of the way that the diagnosis was delivered to me. And for a number of times afterwards, there was no sensitivity around it. But around my peer groups with friends and things then at school, you know, they were really good. I was really lucky. I didn't get bullied. Never. I think that I was very fortunate for the class or the year group I had. And, you know, I'm really grateful. I think that's maybe partly to do why I am the way I am, as in so ambitious, I think, that that helped. I even used a laptop that spoke you know, and I didn't get bullied for that. 
you know, that's pretty something amazing, isn't it? It shows how really good the people were that I went to school with. Oh, very much so. And you are a very ambitious lady and very, very <laughs> positive. You know, you're a very positive woman and you're Thank remarkable. You. Your story is remarkable. But I suppose at that time it's frightening. And the worst thing that could possibly happen would be that your friends and your, your peers did all gang up on you. But they didn't. And that does say something for yeah. the people in your class. Because we do hear stories of, of kids at school that are bullied because they've got a visual impairment or just because they're different in any way, shape or form. You know, if the shoes don't look right, then it's an excuse to be bullied. So, yeah. you know, it's really lovely that, that you had a really good experience. I just remember, though, still having that, even though that experience was amazing, I I remember when I got diagnosed, this sudden feeling of a black brick just hit me. And that feeling didn't go for many years. That heaviness of the sight loss, I think. That's, even though it was good things and positive things were happening in my life, I was in complete denial. You know, I didn't want to think about it, which meant I felt just heavy. I know when, <laughs> when I lost my sight, Kirsty, I was 19, and it went very, very, very suddenly due to diabetes. And I remember at that time kind of being in denial myself you know okay this is just something that's happened and it's 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 going to come back and I'll be absolutely fine there'll be some kind of miracle I really really thought that it wasn't going to be that I was going to be completely blind for the rest of my life and actually sometimes when I did think about it it was almost like a feeling of shock like somebody yeah. had stopped me in my tracks and go oh my god wait a minute I am actually blind whereas I, I then tended to push it aside and say no 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 it's, this is temporary so yes yeah. I was in denial for a while as well but I have to say the negativity which wasn't you know there wasn't a lot of people that were negative about my loss of vision I mean obviously there was people that that stopped speaking to us you know people we'd known for years because they just didn't know what to say and then there was other people that kind of crawled out the woodwork to offer their help support love friendship kindness you know they couldn't do enough for us so any of the negativity that surrounded that time for me I actually turned it around to make it a kind of positive I think if anything you know the more people told me I couldn't do things the more determined yeah. I was to prove them wrong because you know I was very much pigeonholed I knew nothing about blindness I mean I don't know if you had ever had any blindness in the family or known anything no. I knew nothing um, and neither did my family so as far as I was concerned you know I was going to be papped off to live in a home somewhere um, <laughs> and I thought this is not going to happen to me I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to do something with my life but it does take you a wee while to actually do it it's okay thinking it but to actually do it is another thing you mentioned that, that your sight did deteriorate you know in a big way that was around about 2012 wasn't it yes at the time I was volunteering so I was volunteering for SHIP supported housing for young people and I was helping young people with independent living finding homes different things it was like a hostel sort of thing I remember like my life was I don't know I just wasn't um, achieving as much as I maybe wanted to be achieving and I remember this one particular day I looked out of the window and I, I lived opposite a church and I could no longer see the door or anything of the church. It just sort of disappeared. It was like like big blurry grey circle. And I thought, 
oops, I remember that horrible feeling of just devastation. I mean, it's just when I've lost my sight. And something just said to me there and then, got to deal with it now. Can't keep running away in denial. I'm actually registered blind. And that was the first moment. So it took until 2012, from 2003, for me to actually wake up and go, for this to happen, for me to say, wow, I actually have lost my sight. And I just remember looking out of the window, just being completely devastated at that point. Before then, I wasn't using a cane. I didn't use magnification. You know, I was pretty independent. I was very independent. I was a free, a free spirit. I did what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden, I couldn't leave the house on my own. I couldn't make a cup of tea. I couldn't cook. Cooking was a massive passion of mine. I couldn't read music anymore. All these huge things I had to, like, suddenly changed overnight. And then I just remembered thinking, like, I have got to deal with this. And as much as it was like a really dark hole, it was actually the beginning of me moving forward in some crazy way. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. And I think most of us who have been in a situation where we've had sight and we've lost sight, have that realisation moment. So when you're talking about your moment where you came to the conclusion that, yes, I am actually blind, I'm going to have to move forward now. You know, I had that moment as well when my brother, he was only 11 at the time, and, and he came into the house and he was jumping up and down because I'd just come home from hospital after an eye operation and he's saying, you know, can you see me? Can you see me? And I remember dropping to my knees and saying to him, do you know what, Christopher, I can't see you and I never will be able to see you again, but I'm still your big sister and I still love you and we're going to be okay. He gave me this big, massive cuddle, but my mum later told me that over my shoulder she could see his wee face and his eyes were wide open, terrified. His mouth was wide open. It was like a silent scream and the tears were pouring down his cheeks and he just ran out of the room and I remember finding him and saying to him, you know, it's not the end of the world. I'm going to be okay. I remember him saying to me, but you'll never see me shave. You'll never see me win a race. You'll never see me as a man. And that was my moment. For me, I thought, I cannot destroy this little boy's view of the world by me losing my vision. I've got to go on and make something of myself, if only to make this child proud. I I just felt as if I crushed his view on life. So we all have that moment where we do kind of think, right, time to move on now, time to get on with it. And that's exactly what you've done. I mean, you're incredible. You've you've done so many things. It was around about that time as well, though, that you realised you had Charles Bonnet syndrome. Now, for somebody who doesn't know what Charles Bonnet is, can you explain? Yeah, Charles Bonnet syndrome is something that happens with, it's common with different eye conditions that when there's a deterioration in vision, it can cause hallucinations because the brain is activity gets overexcited and puts different images there, whether it's, you know, nice things like flowers or horrible goblins. It, it just differs from various person to person. Mine are when the lights are low, like all different colours come in and it's like, very pixelated, uh, which sounds lovely, but it's quite an inconvenience when you're watching TV. You just want to watch TV. Things that are out of place. So say if you're living in some, you went to a house and they had a really random object that shouldn't be in there. For, for argument's sake, let's just say a lawnmower. 
my brain wouldn't be able to see there's a lawnmower because I've only got I've got no central vision. So it would put, try everything to put an image there, but would be in context. But because it's out of context, I would then hallucinate because um, it can't work out what it is. That's the way best way I sort of describe it. It took a long time for me to actually talk about it. When I started to notice, I was a bit scared because I was thinking, am I losing my mind? And I stayed silent for a long time. I, I wouldn't, I can't really think how long. But Tom, my now husband, was the first person I actually asked. I said, why? Well, I looked out the window and I thought I lived in a narrow street. It was full of lorries. And I said, why are there loads of lorries down here? It's a small street. And he's like, Kirsty, there's nothing there. And that's when I really started to think, well, that's a bit weird. I thought I'd better talk about this. And I just started little bits to open up to Tom. Tom was completely unaware of the things I was sharing with him because I'd never shared that with anybody. And it was starting to feel like a huge relief. For the first time in many years, I was talking about how I actually felt with my sight loss. Just talk about it. Just talk. And then it gets easier because a lot of people stay silent. And that's... That's what the terrifying part is. Now, let's talk about two very special men in your life. You've already mentioned your husband, Tom, but you've also got Bass, your guide dog. Tell us about them. I met Tom six, seven years ago uh, because he's a DJ. So we were out partying and um, he'd been DJing that night. We'd we'd known, we'd been mutual friends for a while. And then um, we sort of got together and we did lots of festivals together. And I actually told Tom I loved him with a big gesture. He was DJing at a festival. And I had a T-shirt made with I love you, Tommy. It sounds so cheesy. As if you knew me. It's like <laughs> something completely out of character for me to do. <laughs> and um, I remember like opening the T-shirt up. But didn't really think this bit through. I couldn't see his reaction, forgetting that I can't see. So... so it was a very one-sided gesture to be honest I did it and I couldn't see his response back oh so did he like, see it though did he see the t-shirt he did he did yeah right before his set in front of like <laughs> loads of people he's DJing in front of um and he's an amazing guy he's big energy very charismatic I'm quite biased probably because he is my husband and we have a fantastic life of doing just lots we just make memories all the time and it's just good fun and he's so supportive when I first lost my sight, he gave up work to be my carer. You know, I give a lot of thanks to Tom because he just nurtured me and I probably wouldn't be the woman I am today if I hadn't met Tom, and that's serious. I think that he is a good man. And then Bass, obviously, my wonderful guide dog. He's awesome. I've been paired with him, with him for two and a half years now. And Bass has really transformed my life. You know, up until I had Bass, I didn't leave the house for years at all on my own. We'd never even gone on a bus on my own. Where Bass just catapulted, made me, you know, you have to leave the house. So I think I've been given this dog. i got to get on the bus. You know, i got to take him places. And I remember the first time I took him for a free run and just feeling invigorated and just so lovely that I could do that for him, take him for a free run. He's very stubborn. Well, he's very relaxed. He's a very calm guide dog, but he's definitely got his own mind. If he wants to do something, he'll try his best to do it. But what 
he's soon realised over the years is that I'm more stubborn than him. So I won't back down. They're so amazing guide dogs. They really, really are. I'm on my third that's going to retire soon. And, and, you know, it's always a heartbreak. But I tell you, knowing that you've got another little set of eyes that's going to do the exact same thing, it doesn't help you kind of get over it. It doesn't make you get over it, but it, it eases it. I think the way that people respond to you is a big healing process. Again, a guide dog is a healing process of acceptance and things because you're putting yourself out there more more people want to talk to you you know you you have to talk to people as much as you say don't touch my guide dog because he's working you're still conversing with people just feel is that companion of having that dog that reassurance that it's not necessary even to do with the mobility but just having somebody with you you know if you're sitting sat in a waiting room sitting in a waiting room is where my child's body can be triggered massively because I'm in a, in a space that I've never been to before or there's things that I don't know. And I'd be really anxious, so anxious that I'd have, probably have to have left. There's just no way I would even gone in on my own. But having the dog there, it takes it away because it's a distraction. You can stroke him and, you know, it. it's just so much nicer. And the way that people respond to you, everyone wants to help. Um, of course, it does. there are some issues with guide dogs as in people with refusals for places but that's just a small amount you know it's a small in comparison to all of the wonderful things a guide dog brings and then the way that they interact with the family it's just an all-rounder brilliant experience I'm just so grateful for him oh it definitely is it really really is now you mentioned your love of music and your love of festivals you're a girl after my own heart I absolutely could not live without music and I adore my festivals now I know I've been to Glastonbury what about 10 times now but you went to Glastonbury this year didn't you you're really into going to your festivals tell us a bit about your experience so I I loved Glastonbury um the whole experience from the start and I mean literally going to Glastonbury I knew it was going to be a good time when all the trains were delayed everything public transport just didn't work that day we were hours and hours delayed and nobody got stressed. We were just, the spirits were high, just so positive. And I just knew, yeah, it's going to be a good week. Glastonbury for me was just, I felt like me again, you know, networking, being able to like talk to the public, promoting eye health. It was just so much more than that for me. For me, it was, I didn't have my cane and my guide dog. I could be Kirsty. You know, nobody knew that I was visually impaired, so I was working and inside I was so happy that I just felt free and that's why I could explain and at the same time it was really hard work your energy my energy levels all of us our energy levels were so high because we're all high energy people but as that it was really hard to keep that up it was great fun and I think like just the whole experience of the energy and the vibe of Glastonbury is just a beautiful place probably it's just a completely different type of festival that I've ever been to but again it's just a magical wonderful place and I think everyone should do Glastonbury at least once in their life just to experience the awesomeness of it. Oh definitely I have to say people will say to me oh you're going on holiday to Glastonbury and I say Glastonbury is amazing but it ain't no holiday it's really really hard work and actually you need a holiday after Glastonbury because I know exactly what you mean it can take hours to get anywhere because of the mud because of the people the the human traffic jam 
being bumped about, the noise, the smells. And you know something? I'll tell people about it and I'll tell them about all of the above. And they'll say, that just sounds like hell. And I think (laughs) it's amazing. I love the fact that I'm just one of the crowd at Glastonbury. It doesn't matter. Mm. Nobody realises at that moment when they're bumping into me that I'm blind. I don't mind at all because everybody's being bumped into. You're just part of the crowd. And I love that. I really love it. Where I found my love of raves and festivals for the exact reason, that exact feeling that is the only place is that I feel that I am Kirsty, that I don't have to explain I'm visually impaired, just free, freedom. Well, I tell you something, I'm like you, I've been to so many different festivals, but Glastonbury for me is is completely unbeatable. I just, I I can't see past it now. Everything else seems a little bit kind of second rate, unfortunately. So you spoil yourself when you go to Glastonbury, but it's so worth going. And I'm like you in that, you know, it's it's definitely a bucket list thing. You need to tick that off your bucket list. Go to Glastonbury once because I've taken people to Glastonbury with me and they've hated it. Or they've loved it. But even if they've hated it, they've said, I'm glad I did it because I know I'll never do it again. But I can always say I've been to Glastonbury. So, (laughs) but listen, Kirsty, it's been such a pleasure to catch up with you today. It really, really has. I've loved speaking to you and uh, really appreciate you sharing your story with me. Thank you so much for joining us here on the programme today. And the very best of luck with the future. Thank you, Joe. We enjoyed it. For more downloads like these, visit rnibconnectradio.org.uk slash podcasts.